This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of The Perilous Fight, Overcoming Our Culture's War on the American Family, written and narrated by retired neurosurgeon and politician Dr. Ben Carson. Available now everywhere you get audiobooks. Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church. This is Pass the Mic. Greetings and God bless. Welcome to another episode of Pass the Mic, Dynamic Voices for a Diverse Church, powered by The Witness, a Black Christian Collective. I'm your host, Tyler Burns. You can follow me on Twitter at Burns23. Follow at your own risk. And joining me, as always, is the president of The Witness, the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Blue Check Verified himself, Jamar Tisby. What's going on, brother? Hey, man, it's 2019. This is like the first time we got on the mic together this year. So I'm I'm pumped. I'm excited about this year. Yeah, man, it's going to be crazy. And as we always talk about, your book launch is fast approaching. Give people the details. If for <laughs> some reason they have not pre-ordered and not bought their ticket to the book release, you got to tell them what's going on, bro. Yes, a lot going on around the, the the publicity and just spreading the word about the color of compromise, the truth about the American church's complicity and racism. I would love for you to pre-order because you get some exclusive pre-order bonuses, including the foreword by Lecrae and the first two chapters. You can go to thecolorofcompromise.com and you can find links to uh, Barnes & Noble, Amazon, but also support your local bookstore if they have it. And if they don't, you can tell them to stock it as well. We have a few events coming up. If you are in the Memphis area, I will be in Memphis on release day, January 22nd, 5.30 p.m. at Barnes & Noble signing books. So if you want your book signed and you're in the Memphis area or you know someone who is, come on out. January 25th is the official Color of Compromise book launch party. This is the only party associated with the book launch. We're going to have Adam Keeley, our creative director, do a little bit of his comedy stand-up routine. He's performed at Second City and various other places. We are going to have a book signing. And of course, we're going to have a live recording of Pass the Mic. So you won't mind. What? We are? Yo, you didn't tell me this. Oh, you You didn't tell me this? You already know. What? You already know. It was written. Man, now I got to get ready. I thought I was going to be able to sit back and just chill. Nah, play. You got to get in there. You're in the game. So um, Okay. Okay. Let's get it. Let's get it. Thrilled about my friend Daniel Hill, pastor of River City Church, and his folks letting us use their facility. But lastly, in January, January 31st, I will be in Atlanta at Barnes & Noble signing books. So we went to Atlanta for a Pass the Mic live tour last year, and y'all were off. It was it was incredible. It, y'all, y'all showed out. It yeah, you almost said off time. the chain. You realize that's uncle it's culture, too, right? So that's old. uncle I culture. Can't, I can't say okay. that. Um, but it was great. It was good. It was a really good showing. I would I would very much appreciate your presence in Atlanta. If you are there on January 31st at Barnes & Noble, I'll send more details. And you can go to my Facebook author page. Yeah, so we're going to put all these dates in the notes too, y'all. So y'all don't have to keep up with this if you're driving or you're you know writing something down or multitasking at work, which you shouldn't be doing. But hey, if you are, it's all good. Wherever you can listen to us, we appreciate it. But we'll put all these dates in the notes section of this podcast. Before we get into today's topic, I have to address something with Jamar because, and I didn't even mention this before the podcast, because um, I, I thought it would be important to, to bring it up. And I'm sure he was ready for this. But um, J- Jamar, Jamar and I had a little Twitter fight 
uh, recently, and you can go back through the tweets and see we went back and forth, the little gift war. <laughs> and uh, my man Jamar, I let him last week uh, talk about his affinity for his alma mater, Notre Dame, women's basketball, and then also Notre Dame football. And I'm cool with it. Like I said, you know what? It's cool, man. Like, I support it. Like, you got, I talked about your tradition, like a big up to it. Like, I was like, man, that's dope. That's, you know, you got a good tradition. Um, I talked about just the fact that, man, he has an alma mater he can be proud of largely. I'm like, that, yo, that's great. <laughs> but this brother gets on, he just, he just got Twitter fingers. Okay. He just got all these Twitter fingers about the SEC and Georgia and now <laughs> Alabama. And it, I think this should be a public conversation. And so I said, listen, this is my brother. I love my brother. I love my brother too much to allow him to operate in falsehood, to mislead you as the public. Oh, I love no. him too much. Here we go. Here so we I'm going to let him Here get his go. thing off. I'm just going to give one rebuttal. We're going to move on to the topic because the topic is much more serious than this. But I'm just, I'm like, bro, Jamar, what, what you saying, man? Come on, bro. What you saying? Because I think you're misleading the people. This goes all the way back to the college football playoffs. Only four teams made it, including my team, Notre Dame, my alma mater, ranked number three in the country, undefeated season. And look, let's be honest. They got spanked by Clemson. They got beat 30 to three, only scored a field goal. It was it was brutal. And here's my beef, though. While the game was happening, all these Georgia fans who didn't make the playoff but thought they should have, in spite of losing games in the season, they were like, oh, but we lost the really good teams and only by a little. We would have had a better showing against against Clemson, yada, yada, yada. And then all these folks who ain't even got a team in the playoffs or even close to it. <clears throat> Present company, but uh, then they chime in like, "No, nah, I'm gonna address that. I'm gonna address Notre that in a second. Don't worry. I got scrubs. you. They shouldn't have been in the playoffs. And then what? Happened? I got you. What happened in the championship game? No less than Alabama. Notre Dame got beat by 27 points. Alabama got beat by 28 points. Didn't even score in the second half. Not even a field goal. And then Tyler up there talking about, yeah, now player, y'all, your team didn't score a, a, a single touchdown. It's not even the same thing." It's like, okay, all right. So what's the argument? I'm trying to figure it out. So what the you're argument, saying is basically y'all should be there. Yes. Because you lost by less, one point less than Alabama. You should have been there. I'm saying all the people who said we shouldn't be there because we got beat so bad by Clemson, you now have to go back and say the same argument about Alabama, which is a much harder case to make. So if you want to judge it on one game by the no, point you don't. spread. No, you don't. No, you don't. No, you don't. Okay, let me, let me, let, I just, I got to go there. I got to go there. Okay. I'm just going to be honest with you. I respect Notre Dame. Y'all had a really good season, but y'all are not in a conference. So we have to go by your level of opposition. Here we go with the hey, Alabama won the SEC champion, championship. Alabama can take a look at the top 10 and say, we play four of those teams at the end of the year. We play four of those teams and we beat three of them. Okay. Notre Dame cannot say the same. What is Notre Dame's best win? What needs to happen? The conversation needs to be. I'm just saying, what is Notre Dame's the best The conversation one? needs to be, are you D1? So you play in competition every year, every year, preseason versus during the season. Your strength of schedule changes. You can't, you can't predict it. That can't be the main thing that you determine college football playoffs on. It just can't. And when you talk That's, about I'm, Notre Dame's I'm record, actually fine with that. We didn't play I'm scrubs. actually fine with that. It's not like we played scrubs. This is not. But you can you can at least acknowledge. I'm fine with that. I'm fine with saying 
that the, that the competition that you play, you expect to play in the preseason is, is different from the competition that actually shows up on the field. Every I'm time. fine with that. <laughs> yes. But here's the problem. Here's the problem. If that's the case, then we have to judge the competition on the field based upon and compared to the competition that other teams play. So all I'm saying is you threw a shot at me because I didn't have people in, you know, my team wasn't in the playoffs. <laughs> nope. <laughs> my team played the best team on your schedule. Who's your team? My team is the Florida Gators. Uh-huh. We played Michigan. Uh-huh. I think Michigan the best win y'all got. I'm guessing. I'm guessing. They're the highest ranked team the that y'all played rank, yeah. at the end at the end of the day. Yep. Y'all beat them by seven. We beat them by a little bit more than seven. Okay? I'll just say that. I'll, I'll let you look up the score so you can feel that hurt yourself. <laughs> so what I'm saying is because we beat the best team on your schedule by more than what you beat them by, According to that logic, well, th- we better than y'all. This is why. This is why it's multiple things, right? So, so my main beef is people saying Notre Dame shouldn't have been in the college football playoffs. You can look at any team and pick one particular aspect, whether strength of schedule or how much they beat this particular team by or X, Y, Z, and say they shouldn't be in the playoffs. But the only thing that people, specifically Georgia fans, were saying Notre Dame got spanked. They shouldn't have been there. They weren't good enough. They weren't at the level. Well. You got to say the same thing. Any that that same team just a couple weeks later beat like embarrassed the 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 Alabama's and Alabama Crimson Tide. So you can't say. But that see, here's the thing: you can't say that the skill level wasn't there because they here's the thing. just as bad. I, I understand you repping your team. I respect you repping your team. But here's the problem: you're making an argument from weakness. You're saying we lost by less than this team. We did. They did worse than we did against this team. Okay. But here's the thing: no, no, no. is did you prove that you belonged on the field in the playoffs? I was just and the answer is no. I was just responding to the arguments that were presented, which is that we got beat. Nah, so but see, that's what we, I'm saying. You can't be spicy no, no, no. with the arguments. No, 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 I'm not. You can't be spicy I'm with not the arguments. Up new if, arguments people aren't making. The only argument they were making was, "Oh, you guys got beat so bad." So I responded. No, to that. this is this no, no, no. is what this is what I'm saying <laughs> is if you didn't do anything to prove that you belonged on the field. You can't then say, oh, see, they lost by them, too. They lost to them by the same amount, too. So you No, they, they did something to prove that they belonged on that field by what they did the previous two weeks. They beat two top 10 teams. So the previous two games that they played, they beat two top 10 teams. And throughout their season, they beat a total of three top 10 teams. And two of them were in the closest moments. So we're not saying they didn't belong in the playoff. That's we're what saying Clemson saying. was just better than everybody. No, no, no. That's not. But see, we don't have any evidence. We don't have the same level of evidence with Notre Dame that we have with Alabama. Notre Dame, we're just guessing because they have an undefeated record. They were saying on Twitter, they were saying they should be in the playoffs, period. This is the essence. And I think you'll be able to appreciate this as a boxing fan. This is the essence of what we're saying. It's not about the fights you win. It's who you fought. That's what we're saying. That's all we're saying. It's who you fought. That's what we're saying. It's not and we, one thing. It's not, we're not saying it's your fault. We're just saying we got to do an honest assessment. Is Notre Dame one of the four best teams in the country? Well, you know, based upon what they show, probably not. Wow. Wow. They had a really good season. By they might logic. be number five. They might be number six. By your logic, any team that gets beaten badly in the playoffs shouldn't be there. No, no, no. I'm not talking about any team that gets beaten badly. I'm talking about a team that clearly hadn't shown, didn't have a signature win over a top 10 team the entire year. Even we had a signature win against a top 10 team. And we didn't belong anywhere near the playoff. I'm just saying, that's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. 
<laughs> and I'm, it's cool. I, I know you're rapping your team. You're rapping your team. It's fine. But I just had to get that out the way because I just I can't let you mislead the people and people will wonder if we were really upset with one another. And the answer is yes, I am upset with you. That is absolutely the case. How long will you lie to the public, Jamal? How long? How long? It's okay. When you have your own reality where you are, I don't know where you'd be getting your 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 sports news or whatever. But when you look at the real world events, the quote unquote history then you might come up with a different story. But that's okay. Listen, man. Anyway, anyway, we're going to agree to disagree for the people <laughs> to mer- mercifully move us on. I get it. Some of y'all are like, man, I can't stand college football. I get it. Yes. But let's, let's power down here. Now we're going to get to the, to the serious topic. This is a very serious topic as well. Something that you guys have been wanting us to talk about for a little bit since uh, the documentary came out. And it is the topic of the documentary, Surviving R. Kelly. Now, I want to make two disclaimers at the beginning. The first is a trigger warning because we are talking about um, sexual assault, abuse, pedophilia, rape. And so this is a graphic combo. And so for survivors of this, this can be triggering. Um, So if you need to take some time away, step away from the podcast, or just skip this one altogether, we totally, totally understand um, and then the second disclaimer is I do recognize, and Jamar and I have talked about this, that we are giving a response as black men. And we recognize that on this podcast, there are not black women, there are not black women survivors. And so there's a limitation that we're acknowledging up front um, from the jump. But we thought it was important to give a response as black men, particularly to black men. We thought it was important for us to be allies and show black men what allies look like, hopefully, um, in our frailty. We're not going to do it perfectly, but hopefully this is important for people to see that black men are standing up and saying something about this. And so we wanted to use our platforms and our capital, whatever it may be, socially um, to speak on this topic. For those of you who don't know what Surviving R. Kelly is about, um, it was a six-part series on the Lifetime Network And I'll just read the synopsis for you. In the groundbreaking documentary series, Surviving R. Kelly, women are emerging from the shadows and uniting their voices to share their stories. Celebrated as one of the greatest R&B singers of all time, R. Kelly's genre-defining career and playboy lifestyle has been riddled with rumors of abuse, predatory behavior, and pedophilia. Despite damning evidence and multiple witnesses to date, none of these accusations have seemingly affected him. For the first time ever, survivors and people from R. Kelly's inner circle are coming forward with new allegations about his sexual, mental, and physical abuse. They are now finally ready to share their full story and shed light on a secret life the public has never seen. With over 50 interviews, including civil rights activist Tarana Burke, musicians John Legend and Sparkle, talk show host and former DJ Wendy Williams, ex-wife Andrea Kelly, ex-girlfriend Kitty Jones, brothers Corey and Bruce Kelly, and many others, the true story of R. Kelly's controversial past will be revealed beginning in 1970 through present day, shedding light on the R&B star whose history of alleged abuse of underage African-American girls has until recently been largely ignored by mainstream media. And then the final part is Surviving R. Kelly is executive produced by cultural critic, filmmaker, and passionate activist Dream Hampton, Tamara Simmons, Joel, Car- Joel Carlsberg and Jesse Daniels for Creative Inc. Um, there's a lot to unpack here. There's much that we could say, and I think there's much that we should talk about. 
But before we get into the documentary itself, I want us to share our experience with who R. Kelly is before we found out about these allegations, or I should say this, before we started to take them seriously. So Jamar, from your perspective, how familiar were you with R. Kelly and were you a consumer of his music on a regular basis? R. Kelly was for years easily the largest name in R&B. And that reality is only accentuated by the fact that he's a Chicago guy. I grew up near Chicago. And so there was also this hometown kid appeal to him, which made him even bigger. One of the things that stuck out to me in the documentary about surviving R. Kelly is that as many times as they mentioned his level of fame, you couldn't capture it. It, it, it was just a shadow of what people, especially in my area, uh, reacted to and responded to. Every time an R. Kelly song came on, you were on the floor. I remember uh, 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 skating at Magic City Skate Rink to his R&B songs and trying to spot that girl you wanted to go skate with. Are you going to ask her? Are you going to ask her? All that stuff. We grew up on this. This is This is my high school years. This is early college years. And so these sort of formative times when you're starting to choose music for yourself and R. Kelly was almost always there. And one of the things that came out in the documentary, his he, he had some of his greatest hits after the most egregious accusations. Yes. And yes. So Step in the name of love. Like, raise your hand if you have not danced to that song, especially if you black. Right. It, right. it was on every at a, wedding. at a wedding reception, at a party, at a anything. Party, it got people on the dance floor. I used to <laughs> you don't know this about me. I used to be a DJ. No, yes. no, no. What? This is true. Not solo. I had one of my roommates uh, when we were teachers, uh, Daryl. He had uh, he was he was the real brains and, and whatnot behind it. But I used to help him go DJ. And uh, wow. we called it Presto Productions. You bring the people, we bring the party. <laughs> and Yo, so, somebody got to pull out a meme. Uh, I need, I need PCM. <laughs> meme this up. He done made a mistake. No, man. Presto Productions. I need somebody to make a graphic design, <laughs> like logo, everything. Come on, church. Um, but we would start out. We would, whether it was a birthday party or a wedding or whatever, we would start out with songs like R. Kelly's Stuff in the Name of Love. So you can't even begin to put into words how big this man's music was. It was, you know, almost every song was anthem, anthem, anthem. And uh, we liked his music so much, I think that's part of the problem, which we'll get into. Mm, yeah. Yeah, so for me, um, growing up, I was in an extremely sheltered environment. And in that environment, I was not allowed to listen to mainstream music, the mainstream radio. So my first introduction to R. Kelly was obviously um, in the mid nineties to, I believe I can fly the, you know, lead song from the movie space jam. And so it was used in all kinds of contexts. It was such a popular song that I was, I heard it sung in church. I heard it sung, you know, at schools, I heard it sung all around and it was an extremely popular song of the time, maybe, you know, the song of the nineties. And it was presented as this up uplift, this inspirational, song, even dare I say a Christian theme song in some yeah, ways, um, yeah. the way in which it was presented and the way it was marketed to people, um, churches and Christian people would listen to this song and enjoy it. And so it was really interesting 
when I actually started listening to mainstream radio in, again, this was middle school. So this was, you know, 2000, probably around 2000, I think. And so this was middle school. And at the time I was doing it privately. So my parents didn't know about it. And one of the first songs that I heard when I turned on the radio, I'll never forget it. One of the first songs that I heard when I started listening to 97.5 WABB was the remix to Ignition. Mm. And this was a very popular R. Kelly song. And what it showed me is I should have known then just from the content of that song alone who I was dealing with. But I excused it. When I listened to the rest of the radio, I said, okay, well, this is normal. This is normative. But I never really had that moment where I went back and listened to old R. Kelly stuff. It was just kind of the newer R. Kelly stuff and maybe, you know, a couple of other songs that he sung before that are classics. But I wasn't super familiar with him. I just knew those things and I knew his prodigious talent. And I knew that every single time there was a, a, a situation or maybe it was like a, a church funeral, a funeral that, that was hosted in a church, like um, Whitney Houston's funeral, they would have R. Kelly sing. I knew that some of the top people in gospel music worked with R. Kelly, like Kurt Franklin, you know, on the song Lean On Me. Again, that's part of my childhood. Uh, whether it's Marvin Sapp or Trinity 5-7 or all these other gospel acts, they would work with him or he would write for them. But I didn't know about these allegations until later when they were used as a joke. I think it was Chappelle, and I, they mentioned it on the documentary. Chappelle had a little sketch about it. Yeah, I remember. That it was a joke. And it was like, you know, a joke of what he would do to a, a particular woman, which you guys are familiar with that sex tape. And we'll talk about that a little bit later. Or I should say rape tape. Um, but I didn't really, it didn't really register with me. And so when I started taking, whether it was the Me Too movement seriously or this idea of massage noir seriously, I started to really do research on this. And what I found was disturbing enough and it was limited. I didn't go far enough, but I do remember that I started sitting down in protest whenever he would be played at a wedding reception. It seemed a little bit, you know, amateur and childish, but I would go up to the DJ. I was like, yo, why are you playing R. Kelly? Like, what is this? Even if it wasn't my wedding reception, like, what's about R. Kelly? Did the couple put him on the playlist? Like, is it you? Like, man, don't you know about him? And seeing the documentary in its entirety shocked me. It startled me. It disturbed me. It broke me. It made me furious. And I think it was because of the content, the way in which it was presented. And it was brilliantly done by Dream Hampton and her yeah. team. But where did you watch the document? What was the context of how you watched the documentary? Because it was very heavy for me watching it in the context. It's at night, you know, it's after a long day, and you're just sitting there and you're getting hit with thing after thing after thing. What was the context of how you you kind of took in all that content in Surviving R. Kelly? It was a very interesting context because I was actually at the American Historical Association National Conference in Chicago. And this is one of the very biggest academic history conferences in, in the whole field. And it was my first time going there. So there was a lot to do. There were a lot of panels to go to, a lot of people to meet, a lot of networking to do. But I intentionally kept my evenings free because I felt like I had to watch this documentary as it was rolling out and not try to catch up later. Um, one of the things is I felt like it was part of a cultural moment. 
that's one of the things actually I do like about social media is that when um, in this case, it was a very sad occasion with this documentary. But there have been others, whether Black Panther or an award show or something like that, where you can watch it in sort of physical isolation, but you can still participate via social media and see reactions. And so I wanted to be part of that, too. Um, And so I cleared my schedule and I watched it in the hotel room each night and I made time and I, I, I said I couldn't hang out with people to, to, so I could go back and watch this. And it was extremely sobering for me because it was very personal just watching it by myself. Yes. Watching the hashtag and seeing other people's reactions, but it, it, it brought me back to the nineties and the early two thousands when I sort of listened almost uncritically and, I felt dirty, honestly. Um, I felt dirty for having basked and bathed in this man's music for so long and celebrated it. And I wished that I could go back and every time it came on, not only not listen to it, but like unpack for other people around why we shouldn't be listening to Mm. it. So it it, it was a reckoning, personal reckoning for me. And it was uh, it was it was very sobering. There was a moment when his ex-wife, Andrea Kelly, is talking about his schedule and how she didn't know about this stuff, but how when she found out about it, she was shocked that he was able to do so much and carry on the veneer of a normal industry life. Hmm. And that's what I was sitting back saying, how do you have the time to do all this, to abuse all these people? And she was like, you have time to come back home, abuse me, shoot this video, record this album, go on tour, abuse these other women. And then you saw that abuse was the subtext of his entire life. Like he had beds in studios. Um, He had, he would do things on in trailers, whether he was at a tour or shooting a video in hotel rooms, abuse was kind of like the, the undercurrent of what he did on a regular basis. So it, it wasn't even in the music, like the music was just the conduit to explain how he was abusing. Right. Like even his, his grooming of Aaliyah and then her, you know, putting forward this idea of age ain't nothing but a number, right? He's, he's again, he's, he's using the music, he's using the industry as a platform just to do what he's doing in private. And so when you realize that you're sitting back, you're saying, man. And then I, I think another thing that really hit me about it was how often he did it and how other people around him covered it up. The complicity. It was, it was this. What is it? We need to talk about this complicity because I'm seeing black men on the screen and I'm saying, listen, if you knew this was going on, you were there when they got married. You were there when the abuse was happening. You covered it up. You settled. You, you passed women money to get abortions, knowing that they were underage. You listened to him. Like, why didn't you step in and do anything? And I, I, I know it's easy to say from, from distance because the life is so alluring, the the fame is so intoxicating up close that you can be be rationalized into doing things that you wouldn't normally do. But I just can't see how, Jamar. I can't see how men were complicit in this on his staff, in his team, as a part of his inner circle and didn't say anything, bro. I just that that part I'm struggling with that. It's very it's very hard to understand. And I wasn't there. So how much can I really say? But I can only imagine. Like, again, it goes back to how big this man really was. Like, everybody wanted him to write a song, sing on their song, come sing for them. 
And when you get in that orbit, especially if he sort of brought you along um, and you're getting some some shine off it, there's a spillover effect. You have, you know, so your your livelihood is attached to this. You probably getting uh, a, a lot of, uh, you know, sexual interaction with people as well just by being around him. So they had a lot, I would imagine, that they enjoyed about this life. And it was probably one of those things where they could have found definitive proof, but they didn't go after it. And not having gone after it, they didn't have definitive proof. So it was like, well, you know, I can rationalize this. Maybe he's not, or maybe he's sincere, or maybe he did something, but then he apologized. So we're cool. Or he got off on the court case. So in a court of law, he's innocent. I'm going to, I'm going to still ride with him. How are you close enough to be interviewed on a documentary about it, but not close enough to be a witness in an indictment? Like how are you, like, why are those things the same? Like how are, how are those things simultaneous? And to me, it strikes me as, as willful ignorance. Exactly. I chose to protect. I chose to ignore. I chose not to say something. And what's so shocking is if one person says something, if one inner circle person takes this information and puts it in the right hands, maybe we're having a different conversation today. But the man's still free. We got to talk. We got to talk about willful ignorance, yes, and and culpable ignorance as well. Culpable. Talk about ignorance. that. Talk about that. So there's a there's ignorance itself is not a sufficient defense, right? So there's the willful aspect of it. I don't know and I don't want to know, so I'm going to avoid the situations that will tell me about it. But there's also a culpability to that ignorance, to where you are in a position where you should have responsibility and oversight over these things. And the fact that you didn't know about it is actually something you should be held responsible for. Because you should have known is the idea. And I think that applies specifically to the surviving R. Kelly documentary and all the 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 um, the the survivors uh, of his abuse. But it also applies more broadly in society about slavery, about ongoing racism. Absolutely. Um, You can't simply say, well, I didn't know you could know and you should have known. And the fact that you didn't take it up is 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 something you should help be, be held responsible for. Right. Um, and that's hard. Yeah, no, I've seen I've seen a lot of that. I've seen a lot of people talking about his inner circle should be held responsible. And I think in many ways this documentary does hold them responsible because their presence right. is on the documentary, but they're they're clearly able to indict themselves with their own words. So they're <laughs> able to say it out of their own mouths that they were complicit. And they're able to realize that. And I think that in and of itself is a cultural shame and a cultural punishment. And let me let me talk one second about Aaliyah, because um, her story yeah. is important. Number Very. one, Aaliyah was massive, too, in terms of her popularity. Uh, her life was tragically cut short. She died in a plane crash. Um, but she was an amazing talent. It wasn't just her singing. It was her style. And so she would have like the crop top with the baggy jeans, the sunglasses, the hat. She came up with a whole look that was incredibly original. Um, she was starting to gain her own following independent of R. Kelly, who, yes, helped get her her start at enormously high cost. Um, and she was one of my favorites, man. When she died, I actually had her picture up on my uh, like computer desktop background 
for like six months. Oh, wow. It was yeah, just yeah. It was so, so, so sad. Um, and she was underage. She was taken advantage of by this man. And there was one article I read that I thought was just so insightful. Uh, she, the, the author was talking about how, um, how R. Kelly and men like him took advantage of black women's ambition. So all of all of almost all of the people uh, prominently featured in Surviving R. Kelly got into his orbit because they wanted to sing, because they wanted to make albums and create music. Right. And this is the man who's a leading figure in the industry, and he's saying, "Hey, you got you got good vocals. Come on, I'll give you a shot." Like who wouldn't take a chance there in terms of you know sort of a professional an opportunity for professional advancement. And then he took advantage of the fact that they were trying to get ahead. They were trying to get a break. He had all the power and and that led down to, to this despicable road. It was a similar case with Aaliyah and he took advantage of her, but she was strong enough and had enough support to get out and continue down the musical path. But it just floored me. There was one part in the documentary where they were on the tour bus and he was back in her room and the 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 but the the door to their room flew open accidentally and the rest of the mm-hmm. people on the bus saw them having sex and this is while she's a teenager right 14, right, 15, right. years old and and that's another thing of culpable ignorance right like what did you think was happening i mean i don't know i don't want to put this on the women right like no else. yeah absolutely not no i i think a big thing that we should say is that, you know, we have to talk about the parents as well. I think there is a sense in which fame and the allure of success leads us to be more trusting. And we should remind ourselves that Hollywood and fame, it's its an illusion. It's a lie. Um, and much of what we see is not what actually happens. And much of what we see is only part of what happens, um, even if that is real. And so I think there was a sense of, well, you know, do what they have to do what they say and do what you have to do, because if you do what you have to do, then, you know, it, it'll be fine in the end. And I think there is a sense in which parents who want their kids to succeed, who are living vicariously through them can make tragic mistakes. And I don't think that was the case for every parent. I think some of the parents were just misled and were lied to by their children. Um, But I think there is a sense in which some of the parents were using their children as platforms to dollars and platforms to, you know, being set for life or vicariously living through them and, and, you know, saying, Hey, whatever you have to do to get put on, just do that. And yeah. I think that's reprehensible as well. And, and, and man, what I was thinking about, man, and you know, before we get into more of this is on the complicity angle, I was thinking about this story in 2 Samuel 13 that you know, hopefully all of us are familiar with, but it's the story of, of Amnon and Tamar. And it's the story of uh, David's children um, just kind of being caught up in this web of after the perversion that he introduced to his family with Bathsheba, him just being caught up in this web of incest and rape and, and Amnon basically loves his sister Tamar or what he thinks love is. Um, He actually has an obsession with her, a lustful obsession. And he is so caught up in this obsession that he's sick about it. 
And when I was thinking about complicity, I thought about his friend Jonadab. And Jonadab in that passage actually gives Amnon the blueprint for how he can get Tamar alone in order to violate her. Mm. And I'm thinking about how many of us unknowingly give people a blueprint for how they can be put in positions to be taken advantage of or to violate someone else, and we don't think twice about it. How often is it that college students say, oh, well, do this. Oh, yeah, well, you guys are going to go to that party? Well, y'all should leave a little bit early and go to this spot because nobody ever goes to this spot. We don't talk about consent. We don't talk about um, violation. We don't talk about assault. We don't talk about rape. What we talk about is how can this person be used for our pleasure or your pleasure or my pleasure? And I think, man, there are a lot of Jonah dabs on that tape, bro. A lot. A lot of men who should be held accountable. Yeah, so I want to I want I want to be very clear for folks. Um, we're not blaming victims here. Uh, we're also not in in saying uh, in bringing parents into the conversation that it's it's entirely their fault or or it wouldn't have happened if X Y Z. So in other words, we're not deflecting blame from the actual perpetrator. Robert Kelly, right? Like he's always responsible for his actions, especially as an adult dealing with dealing with children, dealing with very young girls, right? Um, at the same time, I think what you're talking about is really important uh, because these kinds of things are a lot harder to pull off apart from a context that allows them. And it allows them both through action and inaction. Right. So so that's what I'm seeing. And and the Jonadab sure. piece, I think, is huge because you're right. Like like these guys, these men particularly, they had to somebody had to order the mattress to put a, a bed in the studio. Yeah. Dude was you saying, know? yo, I, I came in. I came in the studio and I saw there was a mattress. I'm like, OK, well, what you say? Aren't like, what's we? good with it, man? And he like, you going to keep working with him like you going to you going to. Throw the mattress out. Like at a certain point, you have to say the rumors are true. At a certain point, you have to say where there's smoke, there's fire. So for me, I'm just saying for me, I, just for me, it's all about the men in this situation. I'm just yes, saying, like yes. it's all about the men, and it's all about the people who are assigned to protect. One hundred percent. I mean, watch that's the just documentary. that's me. I'm with you because watch the documentary. It's not a single man in his employ or in his entourage that I felt like, oh, they they definitely didn't know or couldn't have done anything about it. It's quite the opposite. They definitely knew and they definitely could have done something. And so I think you're absolutely right to bring in, I mean, these 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 Jonadab men, right? Like, here's how you pull it off. And, you know, they want to come on the documentary and say, I didn't approve. I didn't know. Man, look, let's be really real. You knew. Yeah, you 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 knew and you wanted to act like you didn't know. Yeah. Like, let's be honest about that. Because it's too much evidence. It's too much smoke. There are too many things happening. That's and just knew, me. And and, and I just it's it's go ahead. You knew enough. Let's say let's put it that's how I would put it. You knew enough to to have blown the whistle. It shouldn't have taken a documentary 15, 20 years after the fact for this to finally come to 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 the full spectrum of public scrutiny. You yeah, well, some enough. of them see for me, that's that's why I'm just saying for some of them, I know I know a couple of them explicitly said. He said, man, Leah pregnant. 
Like, so my man who's like, look, Aaliyah pregnant. We got to help her out. It's a, it's a situation. All right, now you knew that happened. Now, I know you might have said, oh, well, I didn't know it was him. I didn't know it was this. I didn't know they was doing that. Okay. I mean, we were born that night, but not last night. Come on. Thank you. You know what's going on. But I think what's interesting about it is, and this is kind of, I think, our angle and something that has been weighing heavy on my heart, man, is that this is a response from black men. And That's it. I'm going to be real with y'all. Like, I think I, it's it's very difficult for me to see some of the responses of black men, particularly on social media and particularly in faith communities, particularly in churches, particularly even pastors. I've been discouraged by the response. And there is an argument that black men are unfairly focused on in these stories um, I don't think that's necessarily a fair charge, but that's what people have said. Um, I've seen men say that, you know, where the documentaries about Harvey Weinstein, which, you know, there are a lot, um, you know, there's a full list floating around somewhere on social media, you can find it. Um, but, you know, there are people who mention these objections and say that black men are getting the bad rap here, quote unquote. And we'll talk about some more of these objections a little bit, but Man, I think it is so discouraging to see the response from black men because it proves that we can't be trusted to be a safe place for black women to be heard and believed. If we don't believe black women, who is going to believe them? If we don't stand up and say, these women are a part of our community and something wrong is happening and something wrong happened and now we have to address this in our circle of influence, we have to put... Our, our status on the line as people who are going to be down with something and look the other way. No, I'm not going to friend you because you're going to tell all my business. Okay. If you have something to hide, you probably shouldn't be doing it. And it's, it's a problem that is present within the church. It's a problem that is present within the workplace. It is a problem that is extremely present on college campuses. Parents, college students, check yourselves, please. I'm telling you, it's going on all around you. And it has been discouraging for black men because these are the same black men that talk all this talk about systemic racism. And I'm saying, man, you can't be, you can't be fluid with how you talk about complex systemic racism. And then, and then you do the bird box challenge when it comes to systemic sexism. Like, no, we don't believe you. Don't act like that. We have a responsibility And our responsibility is is that if we are going to say that we love black women, if we're going to say we trust black women when it is most advantageous for us in a political context, in a personal context, whatever, then we have to say the same thing when they're being taken advantage of. Yeah. And that that comes to how we train our young men. That comes to, to what we tell them to do. That comes to how present we are in their lives. That comes to monitoring what they're hearing from their friends. All these things happen. But man, that's been discouraging for me. I've had to unfriend a lot of people, man. Even- even down to childish stuff, like making fun of people's appearance on the documentary. Mm. Wild stuff. I'm talking about, I'm not joking with a pastor. I'm like, man, what, what is you doing? Like you making fun of this? This is a joke to you? I'm telling you, we got an issue, man. It's a systemic issue. And and we, and Jamar and I have talked about our complicity in, in this. And I'm telling you, it is present, bro. 
And it's just once again brought to the light the fact that as black men, we are failing to value and protect our sisters and we need to do better. Black women have been taking L's for black men throughout history. Um, If you look at the American context, even when it came to racial terrorism, what gets all the attention? It's, It's lynching, which was against black men, women and children. But oftentimes the 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 incidents or, or lynching is often coded as as male. Um, and so it gets all the attention. It gets all the outrage these days, uh, although when it was occurring, it didn't garner nearly enough outrage to prevent it. Um, and but meanwhile, the rape of black women uh, from antebellum days onward got hardly a mention. Not that women weren't saying anything. They were. They were speaking out and, and, and protesting, and they had some male allies. But the, the efforts and the activism, even to the point where women like Ida B. Wells would push against the horrors of lynching, even as she experienced sexism and racism, misogynoir, all at the same time. And so Black women have often had to um, push aside their own self-interest for the advancement of the entire race or the advancement of black men, which in a patriarchal society meant that if men got more rights, they might get more advantages, but still nothing close to equality. So they've always yeah. uh, sacrificed their own interests and well-being. And it's time to cut that out, man. It is time yeah. for black men to say that our equality is bound up with black women's equality. And justice for black men cannot happen apart from justice for black women. And we got to stand up and we got to say that and we got to live it more importantly. Right. Even like incarceration, bro, like even incarceration, we talk about it. And Dominique Gilliard does some brilliant work on this in his book, Rethinking Incarceration, and in his subsequent research and talks. And he talks about how whenever we talk about mass incarceration, we talk about this as, you know, we have a problem of fatherless homes because of mass incarceration. And he's like, actually, now the the highest the rising demographic of people who are being incarcerated in America is black women. Now we're dealing with motherless homes. And what he's mentioning is that the system is so skewed that it still perpetuates this this distance from black women and their dignity. And so he's saying we we often code these things whether it's lynching, whether it's mass incarceration, whether it's police brutality especially that's another one. We code these things as male and so we just mentioned, you know, uh, we're like, oh, well, you know, it's 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 Mike Brown, it's Tamir Rice, and we don't we don't talk about Sandra Bland, we don't talk right. about Rakia Boyd. Like it. we're we're not like we have to we have to check ourselves in that fundamental thing. Like, are we just using male examples? And I think it's important for us to take a step back and say, what are we doing on a daily basis? Before we get into maybe some practical faith elements too, um, want to talk about these objections really quick. I've heard four main ones that I want to mention. The first is what about Harvey Weinstein? What about people like him? What about fill in the blank white person? You know, I, I, I'm trying to understand. You watched a six part documentary, and the thing you came away with is where the six parts about such and such? Where the six parts about Woody Allen? Where the six parts about Harvey Weinstein? And I'm like, does does whatever they did negate the six-part documentary and all the black women that you just heard talk? 
They were courageous. They were brave. They were transparent. They did everything beyond the call of duty that they should not have to do to prove to you that this really happened when they were underage. And the the number one takeaway is what about Harvey Weinstein? I need to post that that list of documentaries and that media coverage that they that they compiled about Harvey Weinstein's abuse on social media or somewhere on I may need to link to it in the show notes or something because it's out there. A documentary is coming out very soon about him. So we can't just simply say, "Ah, well, you know, there's nothing." And that's not an absolution of what R Kelly has done. Stay on topic. We can walk and chew gum at the same time. We can do both. We can do all of it. We got time for this. And the thing behind that was, oh, well, they're spending all this time trying to, quote unquote, take down a black man. Well, what about all the white men or other people who have done the same things or same type of things? Where's the documentary on them? So these people were saying, oh, this is just another example of the United States social uh, you know, society or culture trying to uh, bad mouth a black man who's also extremely talented and famous and wealthy. Well, why don't you do the same thing for white men who are like that? And I'm just like, no, this is not that. This was that's not the argument. The argument is women. is what can we do? What can we do in addition to what what has just been done? Like, let's continue this and let's keep pushing, but not well. Why didn't y'all do this for them? Yes, yeah, I saw man. some of that. Yeah, I saw some of that, which was r- ridiculous. Muted that quickly. Well, yeah, I unfriended a lot of people, by the way. But but here's here's a second one. Here's a second one. This this one kind of ties in with this. One. If you out R. Kelly, then we have to out everybody who's done this. Everybody else who's done this. <laughs> yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> this is a principle. I, I just want to say this. I just want to say this. This is a principle of passing Mike. Okay. This is a principle of the witness. This is a principle of our new direction. It wasn't a principle of Reformed African American Network. No shade. I was a part of that too. But this is a new principle. This is something I've been saying to Jamar. And it's, it, this might be a 2019 move. Listen, anybody can get it. Anybody. L- let me throw a shot out there because I was having this conversation at a youth lock-in with some of the young people that were talking about music. And they mentioned Michael Jackson. I said, you know, they got a documentary coming out about Michael Jackson and his abuse of young men. Get ready. Look, PYT and I had a, I, look, it had a good run. I was a smooth criminal for many years, but if it comes out and it's legit, we cutting him too. We good. Anybody can get it, y'all. And this is important because if, yeah, this is what I'm saying. This is important because if you don't have that principle, you will let the people closest to you slide. You will let them get away with it. You will rationalize yourself into looking the other way, whether it is your pastor, whether it is your brother, whether it is your uncle, you will look the other way. And no matter how painful it is, you got to have the idea, the mentality is if someone is hurting vulnerable, underage, young men or young women, they got to go. The end, full stop, point blank, period. Anybody can get it, bro. I'm, I'm so serious about that. And I think sometimes we letting people, oh, well, he was this and he was the king of R&B and he was this and that and he was doing that. And nah, man, we this good. Is, this is where good old fashioned holiness comes in, right? Like, Talk about it. It's us. still right. It's still right. Yeah. I mean, it's not an old fashioned idea. It's a very present issue 
of holiness that we're dealing with here, because in all things, we ought to strive to be above reproach. And it's when we get so much money, so much power, so much secrecy that we think we can get away with everything that uh, that we, we sort of push holiness to the side. And you know what? As I speak, all of us have areas like this in our lives, which is why- Listen, y'all know what's good. Every Genuine last community. one of us. Yeah, every last one of us, right? So so when we say everybody can get it, that doesn't mean we just like hop on social media and just gang up on people. That's, That's ourselves too. That's yeah. us. Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely us. Man, I hope I y'all get me. If it comes out that I'm doing, I'm wilding, get me, please. I mean, you look, we we because we're accountable before God at the end of the day for all of our actions, what's done in the dark, what's done in public. Um, What we're saying is there's nobody with a platform so big, nobody with so much pull that they're above these standards that God has set in place for how we ought to treat one another as fellow image bearers. And most certainly when it comes to sexual abuse, sexual exploitation, uh, uh, the things of the nature that R. Kelly did, I don't care how much talent you have. I don't care how much you like his music. I don't care how many albums you bought. I don't care if he played at your wedding. He's not above getting criticized, getting called to the carpet for his actions. Anybody can get it in that sense. No doubt. Absolutely. Absolutely. Uh, number three, objection. He was abused as a young boy. Now, this is a very serious one. Um, but as someone said, and I cannot find a social media um, tweet. So I apologize to someone who I'm going to quote without attribution. I'm so sorry. But someone mentioned that him being abused is not an excuse, it's context. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good. It's context for what would happen later, but it's not an excuse that says, oh, well, because he was abused now, he can go and do whatever. He can go and 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 abuse people and put it on tape in a in a filthy, disgusting, you know, horrific manner and we can all put it under the umbrella of well he was abused so because of that we we kind of you know ah, I think that's unhealthy and then finally um this was this was one of my um favorite ones why are y'all acting like this is new be like why are y'all acting like this is new what's going on why we've been knowing this for years y'all why are y'all acting all brand new about this and i just don't like that energy around the idea of sexual assault because it is the first time we have had a synthesis of survivors speaking in their own words, telling what happened to them. Yeah. And survivors are always going to tell the most powerful stories because they speak out of their own painful proximity. And so hearing them replaces the rumors. It puts a face with the things that we've heard. It tells us that this wasn't just something that happened in abstraction. It puts a survivor in front of us and says, don't just dismiss the rumor, dismiss them. And that becomes infinitely harder for us to do because there's so many of them. Even one should be enough. But the reality of the matter is our society isn't constructed that way. And so whenever I hear that, I'm like, well, we can keep hearing it. It's okay. What are we talking about? This is damnable here. We're talking about years of this. We're talking about dozens and dozens of people, physical, mental, emotional, sexual abuse. Ain't never, ain't never enough times that we can hear about that. No arguments here, man. That's that's why I 
keep bringing up the narrative of history. Uh, number one, we don't know as much as we think we know. We think we know, but we have no idea, right? Which is what Surviving R. Kelly really brought out is that, oh, well, yeah, I remember a court case, you know, 15 years ago or something, but I don't really remember the detail. Well, these, these women do, these survivors do. And when you hear it, when you hear it, this is the whole thing with, with one of the reasons why I think history is so important to tell specifically is when you hear how old they were, when you hear what their names were, yes. when you see yes. their faces, when you hear their parents talking about them, when you hear how he put his hands on them, how demeaned they feel, it strikes you in a different way. It lands yeah. on you as a human impact, not just a headline. And that's what we need to do. And so as far as, I know we got to sort of the practical steps yet, but it, I keep coming back to this. One of the things that we can do as men, and particularly Black men, that I think uh, we should do is, is sit with that pain that Black women have endured for so long and let it bring you to tears. So there were several times in the course of watching this documentary that I was on the brink of tears. And I don't really express myself that way emotionally by crying. But how could you not? How could you listen as a fellow human being and a fellow image bearer and 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 listen to these people, even though it's on television and through a screen, and not be moved, not be broken over what they endured? And I think as we begin to enter into that pain, the pain that Black women experience, not only will we be ever, not only will we be better able to empathize, but we should become better allies as well. Yeah. But we got to sit with that. We got to let it weigh on us like it has weighed on them. You know, the reality of the matter is that whenever you talk about abuse, whenever you talk about any sort of systemic sexual abuse, rape, assault, um, the painful truth is that it's not the only case. Hmm. And what a lot of people are finding out and a lot of people are, I guess, now becoming aware of or finally being willing to face is that there's a lot of corruption and sexual assault and rape and cover-up in Hollywood, in the music industry, in the movie industry. But I think what's important for us and what's applicable for us today in this context is to say that it is also quite a bit of abuse and quite a bit of cover-up and quite a bit of assault and quite a bit of grooming and quite a bit of predatory behavior and pedophilia in the church. In the church, yes. And we will not just be those people who talk about police brutality and who talk about lynching and who talk about mass incarceration and completely turn a blind eye when it comes to sexism, misogynoir, and abuse of women. We won't be those people. And so if we're talking practically, I'm going to tell you, and this is something that I have to face as someone who mentors young men and women. If we want to talk practically, you need to get in the faces of young men in your church and make sure that you earn the right to speak into their lives, specifically their relationships. We talked, we had this talk this morning in our youth, youth Bible study. We had this talk this morning. What are your boundaries? What are you refusing to do? And speaking specifically to men, because it's on us to make sure that we're providing a safe, dignifying, affirming environment for the young ladies that we're dating or pursuing. And so what is what are we committed 
to setting up, to standing here and saying, raising our hands or standing up and affirming that we are not going to participate in this. We're not going to do this. We're going to set a boundary because we care more about their souls, their dignity, and us, the corruption of who we are, the corruption of our essence, the dehumanizing, not just of them, but of our own dignity, that we're going to draw some lines and say, we're not going to participate in this. What are you watching? What are you consuming on social media? All these things. These are are things that all of us have to worry about, but especially for young men, because I'm sitting back and saying, you're forming grooves that you can continue and you can replicate for decades and decades to come. Don't let it be you. Don't let it be said of you that you were the person who allowed young men to do whatever they wanted to do, to talk about whatever they wanted to talk about, to laugh and joke about anything with no repercussions in your presence. And years later, they showed the same. They actually acted on that predatory behavior. They actually went out and did it. So I think it's incumbent upon us to do that, but it's also incumbent upon us, not just for young men, but to check adults, grown married men in the inboxes of young ladies. Let's be, let's keep it a hundred, man. I'm seeing that too much. I'm hearing too much about it. Now we have easy access to everyone and you sending pictures and you saying, hey, and you carrying on extended conversations with young ladies underage. What's wrong with you? That's not okay. It's not cool. And I know this ain't popular to talk about. I know it's stepping on toes, but I'm telling you, we have to check our own. We have to check our own issues. And we have to say, man, there's a lot of this going on in our churches. And if our churches are not addressing it, if our men's groups are not talking openly about it, if we in a, in a little accountability circle aren't pressing one another and saying, what are you doing? Are, are you reaching out? Do you need help in this area? Do you need therapy? Do you need counseling? We got to break this stigma and the enemy thrives. The devil thrives in darkness and in silence. But when you put stuff in the light, people can get healed. People can get free. People can get delivered. And then young ladies and young men are protected. Can you, can, can, can we just imagine for a minute what it would be like to, even if it was just in a church or a congregation or even a small group, where women actually felt safe, where they didn't feel objectified, where they didn't feel that men were either keeping their distance because they viewed women as um, temptresses and would somehow, you know, lead them into sin. And at the other end, uh, they didn't feel like pieces of meat Hmm. where men were ogling them and, and evaluating them just on the basis of their appearance. What would it be like men if we were those kind of guys and what would it be like for our sisters if they felt that they could just be people around us right not overlooking the fact that they're women but that not being the only reality that they face in the church they could bring their whole selves fully affirmed dignified image bearers i mean i think that would i think we would this is the thing any oppression affects the oppressor as well and so I think as men, we can't even begin to fathom how much we're currently missing out or how much we would stand to gain in terms of fellowship and friendship and, and talents and, and just joy when we affirm the full dignity of women in the fullness of who they are and not just 
their body parts or what we want to do. Yeah. Um, and we got to cultivate a context where that can happen is what it was. What I'm hearing you say, Tyler, is that there, there, there are a lot of things that ha- look, I, I went to college and lived in a men's dorm. Um, I wish I knew then what I know now, because, right. Right. you know, these guys, what, 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 what was going on on the computers in, in the, the course joking, and even in the, the, the womanizing and the promiscuity that was happening then, uh, without any regard to people's hearts or feelings or, or, yes, or safety. Souls, yeah. Um, my goodness, uh, we got a lot of work to do. And I just remember growing up, I had, I had very positive men around me. But but these topics, sex and how to treat women and, and relationships and whatnot. It was almost were, like taboo. Nobody addressed I'm just saying exactly right. nobody addressed it. Right. Oh, like how am I finding this out now? Like why aren't you right. I just had low IQ. Like I'm just I'm so you know, that's why we man, we process out loud on the podcast. And it's we dangerous do. to do that. But to be honest with you, we do because it's like, man, that's not an excuse for us now. Like now we have access to resources and now we can educate ourselves. And if anyone needs to check us, we need to receive that. But man, like I just wish somebody would sat me down and said, man, this is what consent is. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like Never. for real, like you need to know this for your friends. You need to know this for you. You need to know this for the people you date. Like, man, I just. Yeah. And and honestly, I hope there's a word of healing, healing for women, for sure, that this surviving R. Kelly documentary in, in the most tragic way and circumstances, at least let these voices that have been ignored or muffled for so long, let those voices be heard. And it, and it puts black women at the forefront. That's what I thought was the absolute best part about the documentary is that women led it. Women drove it. Women uh, testified. And and they survived. And what a what a powerful t- what a powerful title, surviving, right? Yeah, they, they did, man. They, they highlighted that. Yeah, um, the 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 most the most you know, we talk about complicity, we talk about, you know, this because of our position as black men. We think we should use our platform to speak directly to black men, but these women were courageous. These women were transparent, these women were overwhelmingly brave to recount it. And you could tell that they were processing. You could tell that they still hurt. You could tell that there were just times where it just got to them and they had to step away. There were times where they couldn't handle it anymore. There were times where they were counting something and it was so painful for them. You could see it in their faces. You could hear it in their voices. And I love the fact that we had clinical psychologists on there too that could that talk about these, these, the connections and the behind the scenes. And man, it's, I'm just saying it's everybody, man. It's, it's, it's important for us to take a hard look at ourselves as men, and it is important for us as a society to take a hard look at our practices, what we let go, what we allow, what we rationalize, because there, there are real world consequences. There are people, there are real faces, there are real souls, there are real image bearers of God. And I don't want to be the David in this scenario. Yeah. When David found out about the rape, he was mad, but he didn't do anything about it. He was upset, but he didn't execute justice. Mm. And I think that's something that can happen. We can get real mad and, and huff and puff and stick our chest out and record a podcast and talk on social media. And then when it's our when it's our dude, mm. ah man, well, you know, I it was a mistake, man. Yeah. Ah, yeah, I feel you. I feel you. Nah, you need to be, you need help. Let me get you help. 
Otherwise, we need to take some steps within the community to make sure that you can't associate with us until you get that help. Now, that's where the rubber meets the road. And if you want to talk about repentance, come and talk to us about repentance. But if you're not going to repent after we came to you, we checked you in love and we said, look, man, we ain't saying we perfect, but we just saying you need to get this taken care of because it's hurting the people in your family and it's hurting you before God. And we're not going to let you come back into the community until you get that taken care of because you're a danger to the people in this community. You ain't safe for us. I know you want us to be safe for you, but you're not safe for us. So we can't let you back in. That's where the rubber meets the road. That's when we'll know the church is going to have a reckoning, bro. And it's going to be uncomfortable and scary and sad. But it's what God does to his children. And he does it in love. So even for men who are caught up in a situation or, you know, someone who's caught up in a situation, there's healing, there's help. But you have to say something. And you have to put it down, whatever, whatever you're doing. So find that one person. It might just be one who you feel like you could go to and, and talk about this. Or even not somebody you know. Look, there's literally online virtual therapists. You don't even have to be face-to-face with someone if it feels so shameful, right? But there is help available and there is healing available. And the Lord disciplines those he loves. And so ultimately, though we need a word of rebuke, that rebuke is meant to heal. Um, yes. And, and people listening, we, we, need to, we all need to hear that because we're all falling short in some area. This podcast, we're talking explicitly about um, sexual and physical and emotional abuse. Uh, but I want even those who, who are the perpetrators to know you don't have to stay where you are. You don't. Uh, you are responsible for your actions, but you can also be responsible for your healing, too. Yes. Um, so that's out there. Coming to the light, man. man. Coming to the light. I know it's hard. I know it's hard. As I say this, this is this is a frightening podcast, right? Because we put ourselves out there knowing full well we're not perfect. No, um, absolutely not. Absolutely. <laughs> this, this is what the church is about, man. Not this, this is this podcast. gospel one on one, man. Like man. I could I could not sit back and watch this as a pastor, as a podcaster, as someone who's in any sort of small public eye. And not say something about this. Like I just, it's it's wrong. And we're not speaking from a perch of perfection, but we're not speaking from a perch of pedophilia either. Thank you. So we can speak clearly on this. And we can say, listen, I know I'm not saying I'm not pointing fingers just to point fingers. I'm pointing fingers because this is present in all of our communities and we need to check it. And where it's not present, praise God, continue to, to fight against it to make sure it does not ever creep in. And we hope that in all this, that the Lord, the Lord is glorified and his name is lifted up because his church takes sin seriously. That's the whole point of justice. It's a reflection of the character of God. It's not so that we can stand up and say, we got everybody out. And now we, we, we only, do, we're, we're the true ones. We're the pure ones. No, that's not what I'm saying. But it's saying that the people who are hurt, the people who are oppressed, the people who are exploited, they're real people. And they're going through pain and their lives are shattered because we're so selfish that we don't have the time to confront our brothers or our sisters who are doing this. Don't let it be said of you. Do not let it be said of you. 
May this be a podcast that is tough for us to listen to, but may we take it as something serious that I may not have a huge platform, but I, I know enough people, I know enough men in my life that I need to be checking up on them. I need to ask them some hard questions and we need to make sure that even as we're quote unquote struggling and fighting temptation, that we're not rationalizing, giving in to the detriment of other people's souls and lives. Whew. Yeah, brother. Take this, pray over this. If you haven't seen Surviving R. Kelly, watch it immediately. Uh, do so in prayer and, and soberness. But black women, we love you. We, 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 we're here for you. Um, we, are by no mean, we have by no means arrived, but we want to learn. We want to do better. Uh, we see you and um, praise God. <laughs> yeah, praise God for you. Seriously, your bravery, your transparency, your courage in any way, shape or form is a challenge to us and we're going to do better. We have to. This episode was brought to you in part by The Compelled Podcast, which uses gripping, immersive storytelling to bring Christian testimonies to life. Listen to missionaries, addicts, martyrs, and more who have seen Jesus at work in unbelievable ways. Listen on your podcast app or compelledpodcast.com.